The Old Testament reading is from Amos 6, 1 through 7. Woe to those who are eased in Zion, and to those who feel secure on the Mount of Samaria, the notable men of the first of the nations, to whom the house of Israel comes. Pass over on Caleth and see, and from there go to Hamath the great, then go down to the Gath of Philistines. Are you better than these kingdoms? Are their territory greater than your territory? O you who put far away the day of disaster and bring near the seat of violence, woe to those who lie in the beds of ivory and stretch themselves out on their couches and eat lambs from the flock and calves from the midst of the straw, who sing idle songs to the sound of the harp and, like David, invent for themselves instruments of music, who drink wine in bowls and anoint themselves with the finest oils, but are not grieved over the ruin of Joseph. Therefore, they shall now be the first of those who go into exile, and the rivalry of those who stretch themselves out to pass away. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. The epistle reading from 1 Timothy 6, 6 through 19. Now there is a great gain in godliness with contentment, for we have bought nothing into the world, and we cannot take anything out of the world. But if we have food and clothing, then this we will be content. But those who desire to be rich fall into temptation, into a snare, into many senseless and harmful desires that purge people into ruin and destruction. For the love of money is a root of all kinds of evil. It is through this craving that some of us have wandered away from the faith and pierced themselves with many pangs. But as for you, O man of God, flee these things. Pursue righteousness, godliness, faith, love and steadfastness and gentleness. Fight the good fight of faith. Take hold of the eternal life to which you were called and about which you made the good confession in the presence of many witnesses. I charge you in the presence of God, who give life to all things, and of Jesus Christ, who is his testimony before Pontius Pilate, made the good confession to keep the commandment abstain and free from reproach until the appearing of our Lord Jesus Christ which he will display at the proper time, who he who is blessed and only sovereign, the King of kings and the Lord of lords, who alone has immortality, who dwells in unapproachable light, whom no one has ever seen or can see. To him be honor and eternal dominion. Amen. As for the rich in the present age, charge them not with haunty, nor to set their hopes or uncertainty of riches, but on God, who richly provides us with everything to enjoy. They are to do good, to be rich in good works, to be generous and ready to share, thus storing up treasure for themselves as a good foundation for the future, so that they may take hold of that which is truly life. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Jesus said, There was a rich man who was clothed in purple and fine linen and who feasted sumptuously every day. And at his gate was laid a poor man named Lazarus covered with sores, who desired to be fed with what fell from the rich man's table. Moreover, even the dogs came and licked his sores. The poor man died and was carried by the angels to Abraham's side. The rich man also died and was buried. And in Hades, being in torment, he lifted up his eyes and saw Abraham far off and Lazarus at his side. And he called out, Father, Abraham, 
Have mercy on me, and send Lazarus to dip the end of his finger in water and cool my tongue, for I am in anguish in this flame. But Abraham said, Child, remember that you in your lifetime received your good things, and Lazarus in like manner bad things. But now he is comforted here, and you are in anguish. And besides all this, between us and you, a great chasm has been fixed in order that those who would pass from here to you may not be able, and none may cross from there to us. And he said, Then I beg you, Father, to send him to my father's house, for I have five brothers, so that he may warn them, lest they also come into this place of torment. But Abraham said, They have Moses and the prophets. Let them hear them. And he said, No, Father Abraham, but if someone goes to them from the dead, they will repent. And he said to him, If they do not hear Moses and the prophets, neither will they be convinced if someone should rise from the dead. This is the gospel of the Lord. The lesson that you heard read just a few moments ago. Who sleeps better at night? The person that lives in the valley or up on the bluff? That was the question that our guide asked us. Several years ago, Sandra and I were in Amman, Jordan. And our guide had taken us down into the valley. And there we saw impoverished people. Slum dwellers, as they were called. Who lived in homes made of cardboard boxes or scrap metal. The stench of sewage filled the air. Tattered, soiled clothing was worn by most everyone that we saw. Then the guide instructed our bus driver to take us up the bluff, up the hill. And so we drove up this hill, maybe only about a mile or so, and there we we saw the wealthy. We saw multi-million dollar homes with manicured lawns. We saw luxurious cars parked in the driveways. Our guide, who was a Palestinian Christian, who had been forced to leave Israel when the Israeli army came to his house one night and kicked him out of his house and out of the country, then had to flee to Jordan as a refugee, asked us that question. He said, who sleeps better at night? The one who's in the valley or the wealthy who live up on the bluff. He continued, may I suggest to you that the person in the squalor sleeps better because they have a lot less to lose. The rich person frets and worries, he said, over the potential loss of all that he has and he can only sleep with the use of sleeping pills and anxiety reducing pills. And then he quoted the scripture, For we brought nothing into this world, and we can take nothing out of it. But if we have food and clothing, we will be content with that. Those who want to get rich fall into temptation and a trap, into many foolish and harmful desires that plunge people into ruin and destruction. Contentment in life cannot be purchased. The accumulation of wealth and the life that it buys is not synonymous with happiness 
Many a person has plunged themselves into ruin and destruction, as Paul says, while pursuing that pot of gold at the end of the rainbow. And yet, many people are still driven by this myth that contentment and happiness and fulfillment is directly related to how much stuff we have to enjoy. And consequently, many people set foolish priorities for themselves. Foolish priority number one, I desire to be rich. In the Old Testament lesson for this morning, we travel back to 760 B.C. The people of Israel, especially the residents of the northern kingdom, had become very materialistic. They desired to be rich. Some of them even laid in beds made with ivory. Many dined on choice lambs and fatted calves. They enjoyed exquisite music. They drank fine wines in abundance. And they frequented the spas where they could anoint their bodies with expensive lotions. This desire to live a life of luxury interfered with their relationship with God. They actually became complacent to the treasures of God. And eventually they were, they were numbed even to the worship and the ways of God as they embraced idol worship. But God awakened them from their complacency when the Assyrians attacked them, destroyed their homes, stole their possessions, and enslaved them in exile. All of their possessions that they had owned and enjoyed, or maybe it's more accurate to say all the possessions that once owned them, were confiscated. You see, they had bought the foolish priority of wanting or desiring to be rich, and in so doing, they really lost their soul. Well, now back to today and the allure of wealth. It really hasn't changed, has it, over all these millenniums? In his book, The Forgotten Ways, Alan Hirsch writes, I have come to the conclusion that we who live in the Western world, the major, the major challenge for us in the Western world is not Buddhism, with all of its philosophical appeal to the Western mind. Nor is it Islam, nor is it the New Age. All of these are challenges to us, no doubt. But I've come to believe that the major threat to the viability of our faith is that of consumerism. This is a far more heinous and insidious challenge to the gospel because in so many ways it infects each and every one of us. Hirsch then goes on to quote the words of Jesus from Matthew chapter 6. So do not worry, saying, what shall we eat, or what shall we drink, or what shall we wear? For the pagans run after such things, and your heavenly Father knows that you need them. But seek first his kingdom and his righteousness, and all of these things will be given to you as well. Pagans run after these things, Jesus says. Hirsch observes that many lifestyle shows are often the most pagan and paganizing shows on TV. He writes, even the perennial favorites about renovating the house paganize us because they focus on that which so easily entangles us. In these, the banality of consumerism reaches a climax as we are sold the lie that the thing that will complete us is a new kitchen or a house extension, whereas in fact, these only add more stress to our mortgages and our families. 
These shows are far more successful promoters of unbelief than even the outright intellectual atheism because they hit us at that place where we must render our trust and loyalty. Most people are profoundly susceptible to the idolatrous allure of money and things. Yes, many people buy the false priority or buy into the false priority of desiring to be rich. In verse 7, St. Paul writes these sobering words, For we brought nothing into the world, and we can take nothing out of it. In the Gospel reading that I just read a moment ago and spoke to you about, Jesus uses two contrasting men, doesn't he? One man lives in luxury every day, while the other man is a starving beggar with sores on his body. One of the points that Jesus is making is for us to ponder who really is the rich man. The person who dresses in fine clothing, who eats heartily, who lives in luxury every day, but then loses his soul, and whose ultimate destiny is a tormenting hell? Or is it the man who lives an agonizing life on earth, clinging simply to his faith in God, but whose eternity is in heaven? The answer is obvious, isn't it? Martin Luther observes, riches are the least worthy gifts which God can give man. Yet men toil for them day and night and take no rest. Therefore God frequently gives riches to foolish people, Luther writes, to whom he gives nothing else. The stage play and movie entitled Stop the World, I Want to Get Off is in many ways a most pathetic story about a man named Mr. Little Chap. Mr. Little Chap had virtually anything and everything a person could want on earth, but he really missed the whole point of life. As a young man, Mr. Little Chap started at the bottom, but by a series of events, he became really quite wealthy and quite prestigious. In fact, he rose through the ranks where he was even honored and knighted as a member of the British Parliament. His marriage, Rocky in many ways, manages to hold together because his wife, Evie, just won't give up on him. She becomes a major pillar in stabilizing his later life. With music and comedy, one does not always just know where the storyline of this play is going, but finally one begins to get the sense of the pathos of this man's life as the play builds to the climactic moment. And that climactic moment is when Mr. Little Chap realizes that he has misspent his life. He sings the well-known song written for this play, What Kind of Fool Am I? And the question revolves around the simple realization that after all of his success, he never fell in love. He never really loved. And this realization comes to him too late in the waning hours of his life. He had always focused his life on achievement, on, achi- on, on achieving status. He focused his life on more power, more wealth, more honor. And only when all of these pursuits had proved empty and worthless does he finally realize of what he should have been about all along through his life. As I reflect on that play and that storyline, 
I wonder how many people go through life without ever knowing what it's really like to be loved by God. You know, that unconditional love of God that we experience in the forgiveness of Jesus Christ. That boundless love that knows no limits, again, that was won and earned for us by Jesus Christ. I wonder how many people come near to the conclusion of their life as maybe they're lying on their deathbed and they wonder, or maybe they even sing those words, what kind of fool I am. For I've missed out on so many things in this world that are so meaningful, like a relationship with God. I wonder how many people are like the rich man in Luke 16 who, who are now standing in the hell and looking across that great chasm to those who are in heaven and wondering, what kind of fool am I? Well, here's the rub. The challenging reality that we find ourselves in. I mean, you and I, we live in the lap of luxury. We're some of the wealthiest people in the world. We can buy all the comforts or many of the comforts of life. And because we live in such a wealthy society, there are traps and there's temptations all around us that have the potential to ensnare us, to entice us away from a relationship with Jesus Christ, which ultimately will cause us grief not only in this life but possibly in the life to come. And so what are we to do? Stop watching home and gardening improvement shows? Are we feel guilty about, not, about having a house? About having a cottage? About having cars, boats, snowmobiles, vacations to Disneyland? Or do we feel guilty about the fine dining that we enjoy from time to time or the trips to the spa? Should we sell all of our possessions and live a life of a pauper? Well, no, that's not the answer. And that's not the answer that St. Paul gives us in our text. It should be noted that Paul is not saying that it's a sin to be wealthy. It's not a sin to enjoy the gifts that our wealth provides, for these are gifts from God to us. Paul states that it's actually those who want to get rich who fall into a temptation and a trap. It's those who have the love of money, not money itself, which is the root of all kinds of evil. He says it's the eagerness for acquisition of wealth and riches and a preoccupation of enjoyment with our wealth that can cause us grief and lead us into destruction. So St. Paul actually provides some very sage advice in verses 11 and 12, which I think are key to understanding the question that's before us this morning. For in verses 11 and 12, St. Paul helps us to understand how we relate to and live with our wealth. He says in verse 11a, but you, man of God, flee from all of this. What are we to flee? Well, we're to flee that wanting to get rich. We're to flee the love of money. We're to flee the eagerness for and the preoccupation that we have with our wealth. And to flee from all of this means that we acknowledge that the temptation is always present, it's always around us. The love of money is always lurking in our heart and enticing us away from the Lord 
We want to acknowledge that and flee from it. We want to confess that we've succumbed to the temptation, that yes, we have indulged ourselves in, in the pleasures of life in a sinful way. And we turn to God for his forgiveness and we say, God, please forgive me for losing sight of what is truly the treasure of my life, and that's you. And to flee from all of this means that we change our attitudes and our values and our behaviors. We change the course of our life. We change that direction. And instead, we live our life under the power and the guidance of the Holy Spirit. And so we flee. We flee from all of this. And Paul says in the next part of verse 11, and we pursue daily after righteousness, godliness, faith, love, patience, and gentleness. When learning archery, the instructor will say to you, take aim. You need to take aim. The instructor will say, if you aim, you may not hit your target, but you will be close. But if you don't aim, you have no chance of hitting at it. Aiming in archery is important. Aiming is even more important in life. What are you aiming at? Riches make a bad target, St. Paul says in our text. Aim rather, he says, at righteousness, godliness, faith, love, patience, and gentleness. You see, what we aim at gets our attention, and what gets our attention gets us. And if riches get us, then we become a slave of money. But if the qualities of Christ get us, then we are a servant of Christ. Paul uses the word pursue, pursue, pursue these things. It can be translated aim, but pursue, come after these things. It's the picture of an intense, diligent, determined, earnest, eager effort in pursuit of something. It's like if you can picture in your mind hunting dogs pursuing after the fleeing fox. They don't give up. They keep pursuing. And St. Paul says in our text, not only do you flee from something, but you pursue these six qualities. You pursue righteousness. That's moral uprightness. You pursue godliness, and that's a preoccupation with the holy and sacred realities of life. He says you pursue faith. Faith is not just the simple trust of God for our Savior, but faith trusting in God to provide for all that we need in our life. He says pursue love, agape type love, that sacrificial kind of love that w where you show the love of God in your life in the way that you sacrificially give of yourself to others. He says pursue after patience, that, that ability to endure under a heavy load, no matter what it is that comes your way. And he says, pursue after gentleness, that is composure, controlled strength in the midst of adverse situations. And you see, as we pursue these qualities, it places our relationship to wealth in a different light. You see, then we understand that God is the giver of all that we have and that we are the managers of it. We recognize that God is the one who blesses us in life with all of the things that we call our own. But he gives them not only for our own good, but so that we can share them sacrificially with others who are in need. 
It means that we recognize that, yes, we have investments. And so we invest them wisely as good stewards of what God has given to us. It means that we have homes and cottages and all kinds of vehicles, maybe, and we maintain them because, again, they're blessings to us from God. But through it all, we trust in God to provide us with all that we need. Oh, there may become a time in our life where all of what we have is taken away from us. There might be a crash in the stock market. There might be some kind of war in this world that causes everything that we have to be devalued. And yet, as God's people, we will not despair because we know that with food and clothing, we will be content with that. And so we pursue after these qualities, these godly qualities. And as we do so, we fight the good fight of faith, Paul says in verse 12. We're to literally agonize the good agony. You see, living a life of denial when there's so much around us, or living a life where we're managing the possessions God has given to us in a way that is kind of contrary to the ways of God, can to, I mean, contrary to the ways of the world, can ultimately be quite a struggle for us. But we agonize the good agony because we know that in the final analysis, there's an eternal reward awaiting us. A bodybuilder was being interviewed and he was asked, why do you develop those particular muscles? And the bodybuilder simply stepped forward and flexed a series of well-defined muscles from chest to calf and the audience applauded. But what do you use all of those muscles for, pressed the interviewer. And again, the muscular specimen flexed and biceps and triceps sprouted to impressive proportions. But what do you use those muscles for, the interviewer persisted. And the bodybuilder was, be, was bewildered. I mean, he didn't have an answer other than to display his well-defined frame. When Paul says to fight the, the good fight, he's using a word that has athletic overtones to it. So picture a world-class gymnast, not a bodybuilder. But picture a world-class gymnast there can be no slacking when in training. A world-class gymnast practices day in and day out. In competition, they concentrate totally on what they're doing, and if they break the focus, it would be fatal to their winning or they could be injured. But every muscle in their body that they have trained is now used in that competition so that they can then win a medal or place well. We are to be about the reading of the Bible. We're to be about praying and attending worship and attending the Lord's Supper. We're to be about reading Christian books and listening to Christian music. But not only for the purpose of making us look good, like that muscle builder, but we use these God-given gifts that God has given to us so that as we fight the good fight of faith, we are prepared. Every muscle in our body is prepared for that fight so that we can ultimately accomplish what God wants us to accomplish in this life. And that is to flee from the riches of this world and to pursue after righteousness and godliness. And as we do so, we're to fix our hold on eternal life. 
Paul says, take hold of the eternal life to which you were called when you made the good confession in the presence of these, of these witnesses. When I was studying this text, I was looking for both law and gospel. That's what Lutheran pastors do. And all I could really find in this text was a lot of law. And if you've noticed up to this moment in this sermon, there's been a lot of law. I mean, there's been, there's been warnings, there's been threats, there's been exhortations and instructions as to, as to how to live and use our money, because that's what Paul is reflecting on in our text. And I thought to myself, where in the world, Paul, is the gospel? Where is the good news in all of this, other than the fact that it's implied? Implied in that our sins are forgiven, and that we have this relationship with God through the love of Christ. And then I came to this verse. Take hold of the eternal life to which you were called. If you've ever seen a forest fire, you'll know that there's oftentimes a fire here, a fire there, a fire here, a fire there. They're all over the place. And in order to fight the fire, water bombers, along with the people on the ground, but water bombers will fly over those fires and they'll drop 2,600 gallons of water on those, on those flames, trying to douse them. And then they'll come back again and dump another 2,600 gallons. It's quite a remarkable thing to, to see as it's happening. And I couldn't help but have that image in my mind as I read this text because it was like, okay, Paul, you've laid out all kinds of fires all over the place. But now you've doused out all of those fires by reminding us that when it's all said and done, the reason why we flee the desire to be rich, the reason why we pursue after these attributes of God, the reason why we fight the good fight of faith is because you have in store for us eternal life. And nothing in all of our wonderful creation can equal that, can't even come close to that. Paul writes, no eye has seen, no ear has heard, no mind has conceived what God has prepared for those who love him. And we can't, even, we can't even begin to comprehend how great and glorious and wondrous eternal life is, but it's yours and it's mine because we've been called by God. We were called by God to receive this treasure when we were baptized in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And we're continually called by God into relationship with Him. We're called to God today, come, called by God today to come to this altar and to receive the body and blood of Christ for the forgiveness of our sins. Having a foretaste of the eternal feast that awaits us in the glories of heaven. Our eternal life is not something that we earn, it's not achieved by our fleeing or our following or our fighting but it's a gift, a gift that God has given to us all. And so who truly is rich? Well, I'm looking at him. You and I are truly rich because we have the most wondrous treasure of all, the forgiveness of our sins in Christ and the promise of everlasting life. Amen. And now may the peace of God which surpasses all understanding guard and keep your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. Amen.